We're going to continue our discussion of systematic theology using the Second London Confession of Faith as our guide. If you did not yet get a copy of the handout for this afternoon, if you would just raise your hand and we'll get somebody to get one to you. Okay, right in the back. Are there any more left, John? Where is it? Or who, who has them? Oh, Colin. Okay. Can you just run around handing those to... Are we out? Okay. Thanks, guys. Just keep them up until they find you. <clears throat> There's one over here. A couple over there. Anybody else? Lisa needs one. Okay. <clears throat> There's two sides to this. Um, chapter 9 and chapter 10. Free will and effectual calling. Uh, it was my intent to go through both of them, um, and I just got to feeling like uh, it was going to tax your your uh, patience uh, here in the afternoon uh, if we did all that, and I had to cut out some things that I kind of wanted to include anyway. So anyway, I think we'll just get through chapter 10 here this afternoon. Um, although if you look energetic and excited, I have the notes to chapter 10 too, so no, I'm teasing. I left those in the office. Um, so just this afternoon, chapter 9 uh, of free will. <clears throat> Sometimes Calvinists are accused of denying um, free will at all. And that is not true, at least not in the terms of the writers of this confession. And um, the, the concern, though, is that as we're talking about the human will, the idea of free will, that we define it, that we define it carefully, and that we define it as the Word of God defines it. So this afternoon, that will be our topic, and uh, we will begin by taking a look at the definition that is expounded here in the first paragraph of chapter 9. This is the basic definition of free will as it was understood by the writers of this confession. I think as it is um, a good summary of the Bible's teaching. So here it is, paragraph 1, the definition. God has endowed human will with natural liberty and power to act on choices so that it is neither forced nor inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. So there's three parts to this definition. When we're talking about the human will, the idea of free will, what do we mean by that? Well, number one, free will, according to the confession, is the power or the ability to act or at least to attempt to act, on one's own choice. The ability to act on choice, to do what I want to do, to act on our desires. So if a man acts according to his desires, if he does what he wants to do, then he is, in that sense, free. He has a free will. Matthew chapter 17 is one of the passages that's referred to here in the confession. It's uh, talking about John the Baptist. Jesus says, but I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him 
And notice this, and they did to him whatever they, what? Whatever they pleased, right? So human beings are free to do what they desire to do. That's the definition of freedom as it's given here, and I think as it is in line with the Bible. And that definition, that human beings are free to do what they want to do, that is sufficient biblical grounds for their responsibility to God. Here's another passage, James chapter 1. <clears throat> you know, we, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, or a few weeks back maybe. James 1 verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire, right? So free will, described as the ability to act according to our desires, that is sufficient grounds, biblically, for someone to be accountable to God for his actions and for his sins. That's the first part of the definition. Second one is this, that free will, and you can see it in the, in the confession there, free will means that human acts are not forced. They're not coerced. He is neither forced. Well, that's the part we're looking at. Human acts are not coerced. In that sense... Even acts that are constrained by, uh, what shall we say, less than ideal circumstances, even acts, choices that we make that are constrained in that way, are still f- acts of our free will. They're still said to be free in this definition. So let's say you're out at night and someone comes up to you with a gun or a knife and says, all right, your money or your life. Okay, now... I don't want to give him my money, right? But, and I, and I could refuse to give him my money. But, but given the options that are there, my free choice is going to be to save my life. That's what I want more than anything else in that moment. I mean, I want money, but I want my life even more. So in that sense, my actions are free. Even though they're constrained, they are free because I'm doing what I want to do. In fact, the truth is we all have conflicting desires at times, right? We want something, we want something else, and sometimes the things that we want, you know, we can't have them both at the same time. We have constraining circumstances that we face. We, we desire to do something, but the situation's not optimal, and so we find ourselves having to make other choices. But free will means that we always act according to our deepest desire in that moment. Like the guy with the, you know, with, in front of the guy with the knife. Your money or your life. Well, I would choose not to lose my money normally, but in this case, I'm going to do what I want to do, which is save my life. So the, the principle is human beings always act in accordance with our deepest desire in that moment. James bears this out. Let each, per, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This is a, an important part of, um, of the biblical concept of free will. 
um, that it is acting in accordance with our desires, that it is acting in a way that's not forced or coerced. Um, there are other understandings of free will. And this could be a whole, you know, you could take a whole philosophy class and talk about like nothing for a semester probably except free will. And uh, there's, I mean, it's a huge subject in philosophical debate, of course. If you've ever taken a class um, along that line, you're very familiar. But there is a competing understanding of free will um, to the one given here in the Confession of Faith. Um, sometimes it's called libertarian free will. And the idea here in this understanding, that understanding, is that man, free will means that man could always act otherwise than what he chooses to do. He could always choose the opposite. His actions are not determined in any way. They're not determined by anything within himself or anything outside of himself, namely, what? Right. His actions are not determined by God or really anything ultimately within himself. He could always choose differently from what he did. But, and this kind of understanding of human freedom says that God's sovereignty and God's determination of something is incompatible with human free will. In other words, humans can't be really free if God has determined whatsoever comes to pass. Those two are incompatible. That's this view, not the view of the confession, not the view, I say, of the scriptures, but that isn't what a lot of people have in mind. Human freedom means I'm just, I'm totally, nobody's controlling anything about me, and I am just, I am autonomous. The confessional view, on the other hand, I think the biblical view, sees divine determination of whatsoever comes to pass and free will as not incompatible. In other words, they, 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 they can work together. They, they, they are not contradictory if we rightly understand what free will is. And the reason for that is that God's determining of things does not operate in contradiction to the desires of the creatures that he controls. In other words, they still act according to their own what? Their own desires. They still act according to choice, as it's stated in the confession. God can determine those things, and yet those people, those creatures, still do what they want to do. In human terms, we would say this, a man sins because he wants to sin, right? God doesn't force anyone to sin against his own nature, against his own desires. If a person sins, if a person rejects Jesus, he rejects him because he wants to reject him. He does not want to submit to God. That is the confession's definition of free will. Now, there are some attempts um, from people to compromise. Uh, and some of this gets a little bit down in the weeds, but maybe it'll be at least, uh, at least something to get you thinking. I don't know. Uh, there are attempts to compromise um, 
the idea of libertarian free will with God's um, God's sovereignty and God's uh, determination of all things. One attempt at compromise is what's known as middle knowledge or Molinism. Uh, somebody, I guess it's been going around that there's a debate, I think, going to happen in Houston between James White, a Reformed Baptist, and somebody else, I'm not sure who it is, on the topic of Molinism. I don't know what that's going to be like, but uh, but this is an attempt to understand uh, human freedom in terms of and relating that to God's control of all things. So here's the, uh, this is just the real like super quick, superficial description of it. And what I think is the, the main problem with it, although you could you know, talk about it for a long time. Middle knowledge is this. So middle knowledge says, on the one hand, God knows himself perfectly. I mean, before there was anything or apart from uh, the things that are created, there is only God, right? And God has a perfect knowledge of himself. God also has a perfect knowledge of whatever will happen, whatever is happening, all of the things in outside of himself. He has a perfect knowledge of that, right? So he's got perfect knowledge of himself, perfect knowledge of everything outside of himself. This theory says that there's a kind of a knowledge that he has that comes in between those logically. That knowledge is God knows what any creature would do in a particular situation. If he were in that given situation, given, of course, an infinite variety of situations that God could create, God knows what every creature would do in that particular situation, in that circumstance, with that number of people in the world, with that particular uh, physical phenomenon happening in the world, and that particular place and time in history, this is what he would choose, right? That's that's um, this theory. And then God, then, out of all of those possible scenarios, God chooses to actualize, to create one of those. And the attempt here is to, of course, to preserve human freedom in almost in this sort of libertarian sense. Now, I think on the on, in one sense, I would say we we agree that God knows all possibilities, but the problem really is that at least the biggest problem to me is this: Where does God's middle knowledge come from? Is his knowledge of himself that, of course, derives from himself? His his knowledge of all things that come to pass, that we say comes from his decree. Why does he know the future? Because he decreed all things whatsoever comes to pass. So the question is, where does this middle knowledge come from? And the Molinist will not say it comes from God's decree because this middle knowledge comes before the decree. In other words, God has to have knowledge, according to this theory, God has knowledge that ultimately did not come from himself. God is, you have to say it this way, God is in some sense dependent in this scheme on something outside of himself. In this case, for knowledge. God is, in this sense, dependent upon his creation. And that flies against everything 
that the scripture says. We'll come to passages in Isaiah, which I think will refute that. That God is independent, always independent from his creation. God is not dependent on anything. He is the author of all things. So anyway, that's just one quick quick pass at, at uh, an attempt of compromise. I think, honestly, the most consistent form of compromise with libertarian free will is a compromise that's also the most pernicious, and that is something called open theism. Open theism sort of runs on this sort of logic, all right? So if you're still following with me, good job. If you're not, that's right. We'll come, we'll sort of circle back. Um, Open theism runs on this logic. If you remember logic with your major premise, your minor premise, and your conclusion, okay, here it is, major premise. Um, If God's knowledge of the future is infallible, then the future is determined. It couldn't be anything other than it is. Otherwise, his knowledge of the future wouldn't be wouldn't be uh, infallible, right? So, if God's knowledge of the future is infallible, the future is determined. Minor premise: for humans to truly be free, their futures must not be determined. They must be undetermined or uncertain, because they could do something other than what they choose to do. So, you can't say in any way. Their futures are determined if they're truly free. The conclusion then is this. Therefore, God must not infallibly know the future. Because the future, by definition, is unknowable if you want to preserve this idea of human freedom. That human freedom must mean that their futures, our futures are undetermined. The problem, of course, with this is that it contradicts clear scripture. And we must allow the word of God to trump every bit of of philosophical reasoning that uh, comes to the human mind. Passages like Isaiah 46 and verse 9. The Lord says, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. This is actually the one we read this morning declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The Bible teaches that God knows the future because he ordains the future. The, the problem really with the, the um, logic of the open theist is his minor premise, right? You remember what that was? In order for humans to be truly free, their futures have to be undetermined, uncertain. That is not what we would say. In fact, we would say human freedom means rather not that our futures are undetermined. God has told us what the future is. Rather, human freedom means that humans are always free to do what they most want to do, what is in keeping with their natures. And that brings us to the third part. Now we're circling back around. So if you got lost, you come back around. What does it mean for humans to be free? The third part of the definition, according to the confession, is this. That the human will is not inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. 
The human will is not inherently bound by nature to do good or evil. The original uh, version of this, this is the updated wording, it read this way. Humans are not, quote, by any necessity of nature bound to do good or evil. There is no necessity in human nature per se that binds us to do good or evil. In other words, human nature viewed apart from the fall or redemption or glorification, just human nature per se, um, it is free in that sense. Now the rest of the paragraphs, two, three, four, and five, all they do is describe the fourfold state of the human will throughout history. Okay. And if you're wondering, why is this all that important? It, it, it is important, number one, because the Bible should stand for the microphone, right? The Bible tells us about human nature. The Bible tells us how to think rightly about who we are. And secondly, because this impinges on the gospel itself, the gospel of God's free and miraculous grace that saves hardened sinners. That was why we meant to get to the next chapter on effective grace, but we'll wait till next week. So, what is the fourfold state of the human will? Are you familiar with this? Some of you have heard this. Um, <clears throat> I think it was, uh, well, a lot of people have, um, have described this. Augustine was one um, and others as well. But um, the paragraph two, notice how it begins. Humanity in the what? State of innocence, all right? So we're talking about the human will in Adam and Eve, before the fall, in the state of innocence. That's paragraph two. Paragraph three starts this way. Humanity, by falling into a state of sin. All right, so now we're talking about the human will in the state of fallenness, sinfulness. Then paragraph four, the state of grace. You see that in there. And then finally, paragraph five speaks of the state of glory. So these are the four states of the human will at different times in human history. So let's take each one in turn and just see what the confession says. Number one, the state of innocence. Humanity in the state of innocence had freedom and power to will and to do what was good and well-pleasing to God. Yet, this condition was unstable so that humanity could fall from it. Augustine said that before the fall, humanity has the ability to sin and had the ability to not sin. Posse peccare and posse non peccare. The ability to sin, Adam and Eve, and the ability to not sin. That's what's reflected here in this paragraph. The next paragraph, paragraph three, talks about the second state of the human will in the fall. And here's what it says. Humanity, by falling into a state of sin, has completely lost all ability to choose any spiritual good that accompanies salvation. Thus, people in their natural state, that is the state of sin, are absolutely opposed to spiritual good and dead to in sin so that they cannot convert themselves by their own strength 
or prepare themselves for conversion. Friends, this is a reflection of the fact that the Bible teaches that the fall of humanity was radical. It was huge. It changed everything. And so much wrong thinking about the gospel flows from downplaying the effects of the fall. Right? So much of wrong thinking about the gospel flows from downplaying the effects of the fall. In the fall, man lost his ability to not sin. Adam had the ability to sin, the ability to not sin, that was lost. No human being now is born innocent like Adam. Innocent in the sense that Adam and Eve were, right? This was an ancient heresy, actually, condemned by the church. It was a heresy called Pelagianism, which taught that human beings were not born sinful, we were born innocent, like kind of like starting over in the garden all over again anytime a new human being is born into the world. This is not what the scripture teaches. The confession further says that humans are unable to convert themselves or prepare themselves for conversion. So what does the Bible say? I say, Pastor, that's what the confession says. Yippee, glad for the confession. What does the Bible say? Well, all that the writers of these, these confessions are trying to do is to summarize what the Bible says. So let's think about what the Bible says. You're familiar with most of it. Romans chapter 6 says that we are slaves to sin. Picture that. You're a slave, right? And chained, unable to set yourself free. Ephesians chapter 2 says you are dead in your sin. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says we are blinded in our sin. This is a picture of the natural state of humans in the state of sin. Or consider these passages of Scripture. John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus said, no one can come to me. Literally, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 65 of that same chapter, Jesus said again, no one can come to me unless, no, no one is able to come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Paul says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, in my state by na of, na of nature, in sin. Romans 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, what? Cannot please God. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Over and over again, the Bible is telling us something that really, I think, just goes against the grain of the way that most of us want to think naturally. And that is, hey, I'm, I do some bad things, but I'm not all that bad. Well, the Bible's picture is that we are... We would never be inclined toward God in the state of our nature. 
just in sin. We are fallen, radically fallen. Jonathan Edwards emphasized the fact that this inability that Jesus talked about, no one is able to come to me, but this inability to choose God is not a natural or physical inability. It's a moral inability. It's a moral inability because it resides in our wills, in our desires. And while it would be inconsistent for God to require a man to do something that he cannot naturally or physically do, he is entirely justified to require man to do something that he is morally unable to do in that he simply does not want to do it. This inability that Jesus talked about, no one is able to come to me, is an inability that's located in the human will. That human does not want to come to God. And for that reason, he is morally accountable. Augustine went on to illustrate the the difference here. He said, you can imagine a great king had an enemy locked away in his prison. Or imagine imagine two prisoners in in these cells. And the first prisoner... Um, he, he has a desire to be reconciled to the king. He, if he had his way, he would run to the king and beg for his forgiveness and pledge his loyalty to the king. I mean, he would just break out of there and, and run immediately to the king. But the thing that prevents him is that he's locked in jail with these bars and these walls. He just cannot get out. He has the moral ability to repent, we might say, but not the natural Ability And some people, Edwards argued, mistakenly think that Calvinism means that God's determination is actually holding people back from running to him in repentance when they really would do so otherwise. He's hardening them in the sense that they really want to come, but he's keeping them from being able to come. No says Edwards, that is a natural inability. What we're talking about, that's not the case with fallen man. What's the case with fallen man is that he has a moral inability. He he said, suppose this other prisoner is there and in his cell, the prison door is wide open. In fact, the guard is standing out on the hallway saying, come, 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 be free, be reconciled to the king. He is a full of compassion and kindness. And if you beg for his mercy, he will be gracious to you, right? But that man in that cell, he hates the king. To repent to him would be utterly despicable in his eyes. He would rather stay in prison with the door wide open than to have to go and bow the knee before that king. This, says Edwards, is, is, is what human nature is. There is a moral inability that resides in our natures and our wills that we will not repent and come to Christ. There is just something in us that is so fallen that apart from grace, no one would ever have that desire. It is a spiritual problem. It is a hardness for which that person deserves the judgment of God. This is moral inability. Martin Luther called it the bondage of the will. In this state of sin, it's like the will is in bondage to our natures, which are set against God. 
Sometimes it's called total depravity. And I know it's kind of a downer in a sense to talk about this, right? But it leads to, to, to the greatness of grace. Total depravity, or better called radical corruption, doesn't mean that every sinner is as bad as he could possibly be. There is a kind of civil goodness. But none of it is true goodness in the sense that it is not ultimately submitted to God in faith. Say that there's uh, a band of pirates out on the high seas and they are flaunting the king and his law and raiding at will. But, you know, maybe you meet some of those pirates or you just, let's say, we're sort of magically transported to the pirate ship in the, between raids and we can look at, down at them and we see them being gracious to each other. When one gets wounded, another one cares for the wounded or the sick. Um, When they get their um, booty, they share it evenly. They follow the captain. Some of them have families. They have children. They write long letters home, right? You look at them, they say, these aren't really bad guys when you get to know them. And in one sense, yeah, maybe they're not all diehard cutthroats, But the problem is, they're all, by their very occupation, at war with the king. And that is the state of humanity. Humans are not all as bad as we could be in the the civil sense, but in, in, in the ultimate sense, we're all at war with the God of the universe. We all are saying, I want to do what I want to do. And that's ultimately the way I want to live. And human beings are incurably that way. That's what the Bible teaches. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, hardened in our hearts against God. So even the good that men do apart from submission to God in Christ is part of their rebellion. This is the state of sin. But praise God, there is the next paragraph, amen? A state of grace, all right? And here's the way the Bible describes or the confession describes the will, the human will in the state of grace, Paragraph four, when God converts sinners and transforms them into a state of grace, he frees them from their natural bondage to sin and by his grace alone enables them to will and to do freely what is spiritually good. Yet because of their remaining corruption, they do not perfectly perfectly or exclusively will what is good, but also what is evil. So now here's the third state, right? We have the state of innocence, the state of sin, the state of grace. And in the state of grace, the human nature, by the mercies of God, is transformed, right? I mean, literally transformed natures. This is an amazing thing. The will is set free so that that person is empowered to turn to God. The ability to not sin is restored once again. And that is a miracle that any sinner would truly want to give up his sin and submit his own will to the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, that's a miracle if what the Bible says about um, depravity is really true. And, of course, we also live, so we live in this state of grace, and we are already set free from the flesh, but we're not yet fully 
free from the flesh. We're still waiting for the transformation of our bodies and souls. So we're in this already not yet time, and that's why we still retain the ability to sin. And many times, sadly, even Christians exercise their free wills against um, the law of God, against his word. And that all just makes us long for this last state, which is described in the fifth paragraph. Only, it says, in the state of glory is the will made perfectly and unchangeably free toward good alone. And we are longing for that day. Amen? We are longing for that day when our wills are made perfect. And there's some wonderful passages of Scripture that point us that direction. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, looks forward to the day when we all attain to the unity of the faith and the full knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, to the day when we are just like Christ as a people, as individuals, to that day when we are like Christ. Here's what John says, 1 John 3, verse 2. We know that when he, that is Christ, appears, we shall be, what? Like him, for we shall see him as he is. In that day, what a day, we will finally join those who are called in Hebrews chapter 12, the spirits of the saints made perfect. and We will be one with them made perfect, never more to will to sin, that will will be perfectly and totally sanctified. Imagine that day when your will doesn't betray you anymore. Yeah? When your desires in their murky depths are not warring against each other. And you, you will say, I mean, if you're a Christian, I know you will say this. God, no matter what I choose to do, deep down, I, by your mercy and grace, I really want to please you. You can't say that. You're not a Christian. But in spite of being able to say that, we find that in our weaker moments, our wills are going in a different direction. We do not do the things that we want. It's like our wills are fighting against our wills. And we're torn by our conflicting desires. But imagine a day when your desires themselves are utterly perfected. Imagine a day when you don't have to fight against your fleshly desires anymore that the only desires that you sense and feel are all pushing you towards God, towards goodness, towards love. What a day that will be. And just to get ahead of myself, it is the sovereign grace of God that brings us out of this depravity and sets us on the path that will ultimately and inevitably lead us to that place. Praise God for sovereign, miraculous grace. And may the Lord continue his work in our state of grace now to bring us all the way to the state of glory. And uh, by the way, you know what else the sovereignty of God means? 
that if you're in the state of grace now, you will be in the state of glory. That even though no one is able to come to him unless the Father draws him, unless it is given to him by the Father, that those whom he gives will come to the Son, and the Son will raise them up at the last day. It all sort of flows together, this idea of perseverance of the saints and God's preservation and and that none of his will be lost. This flows from the idea of sovereign grace, the idea that is beautifully revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. And it is... it does make us all sit back with our mouths a little bit open and sometimes we scratch our heads and say, I, I don't, I'm not sure I totally comprehend everything that God is saying here. And that's okay. As long as we say, God, whatever you say, I accept it. I receive it. And I will think your thoughts after you. Everything you say about humanity, about our nature, about the glorious gospel of God's grace. Amen?